We do appreciate the presence of each one this morning. I'll invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5 today. Luke chapter 5. I'm especially glad to see Michael McMunn and his wife Stephanie with us. Of course, Michael was a member here for, oh, quite a few years. And good to see them back and I think sitting in this, just about the same place uh, where he sat when uh, he was a regular member here. But uh, good to see them with us. <clears throat> We announced in the auditorium class that Savannah Spawn, she's taking a job in Auburn, so she'll be moving to Auburn. Today's her last Sunday. She will be here Wednesday night, but this will be her last Sunday with us. We hate to see her go, of course. Uh, been such a good uh, influence here and a joy to get to know her. And we, of course, hope and pray for nothing but the best for her. And I uh, look forward to seeing her again in the future. Surely she's going to come back and visit with us. I, I sure hope so. Well, when Jesus encountered various people in his lifetime as he went from place to place preaching, uh, he, uh, he met with various responses. Uh, some people met him and spent some time with him and uh, were really amazed at what he did and, and what he taught. Uh, for example, uh, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Nathanael calls him the Son of God and the King of Israel. Uh, the woman at the well refers to Jesus as the Savior of the world. And so these people are very much impressed with Christ. <clears throat> They're uh, excited uh, to have gotten the opportunity to spend some time with Him. Perhaps they saw some of His works. And so they make these confessions of faith the Lamb of God, the, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Savior of the world. On the other hand, others reacted with anger when uh, they encountered Jesus. Others made accusations against Him. In John chapter 8, verses 48 and 49, some accused Him of having a demon and being a Samaritan of all things. And so some people, uh, their, their anger is aroused when they hear Jesus teach or they see what Jesus has to do. You remember that some accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so Jesus doesn't always get a positive response. He gets a response. It's not always a positive one. Sometimes it's a very strong negative one. Well, in Luke chapter 5, we're going to read about an episode which contains... What's always seemed to me to be a rather unusual response to Jesus. And so let's just begin reading in verse 1. It says, It happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And so that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is in this territory where he did a lot of his teaching and a great crowd comes out to hear him teach. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing them, their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And so there was such a crowd of people, Jesus was, it was just difficult for him to just uh, have, a, have a place to stand and to teach. And so he gets in the boat, puts out a little bit from the shore, and that just puts him in a position where he can communicate a little bit more effectively. And so he teaches the people from there. And so he teaches. And then the next verse says in verse 4, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. 
And so this, this uh, takes Peter a little bit by surprise that Jesus would tell him, now, now I want you to, to go out into the deeper water and you're going to have a large catch of fish. They're, they're fishing by nets, throwing their nets out into the water and drawing them back in. And Jesus says, you're going to draw in a great catch. Now Peter goes on to tell him, now we've worked hard all night and we hadn't caught anything. Now Peter's a professional fisherman. <laughs> He's from Bethsaida, which is not too far from there. He lives in Capernaum, and so those are sort of seaside towns or lakeside towns. He grew up around the water. He had fished the waters of Galilee many, many times. He knew them well. Now, Jesus was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. And so you think about that. Here's Jesus, a carpenter, telling Peter, the professional fisherman, if you'll go out into the deeper water, you'll catch a lot of fish. And Peter says, we, look, we've been fishing all night. We hadn't caught anything. But Peter knew Jesus. And uh, this is in the second year of Jesus' ministry. And so Peter has known Jesus for a while. And so because Jesus asked him or directed him to put out into the deeper water, Peter is willing to do it. And so you see that again, verse 5. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing but... I will do as you say and let down the nets. I don't know that Peter had a great deal of confidence that it was going to work. Sounds like he has some doubts, even that, though it was Jesus that directed him to do this. But, but at your word, he knew him well enough, at your word, I'll, I'll let down the nets. Well, not only does he catch fish, he catch, catches so many fish that he has to call to their partners to help them come and haul the fish into the boat. Verse 6 says, When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, which would be James and John, for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So many fish, <laughs> the boats began to sink. Well, look at verse 8. We find... Well, let's go down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Amazement seized him. Peter is just amazed. Now, that's an unusual word. The word for amazement there is not found all that often in the Bible. A lot of times when it is found, it's associated with miracles. In Luke chapter 4, just the page prior to this, in verse 36, Jesus cast out a demon, and amazement came upon them all and began to talk to one another. What is this message uh, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, they come out. They're, they're amazed. The unclean spirits come out at his word. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple and they enable the lame man to walk on that occasion and find that word again. Amazement fills the people who saw that. And so in Luke chapter 4, New American Standard Bible, amazement had seized them, you know. That's, a, that's a, a vivid way of describing what happened. So Peter sees the great catch of fish. He has his doubts whether it's going to work or not. He throws his nets out there. There's so many fish. Their nets are breaking. They call to their partners. Their boats are sinking. And Peter is just, we might say, he's stunned. He's just stunned. He's shocked by it. And he's, he's amazed. And then he says in verse 8, Simon Peter saw that. He fell down at Jesus' feet. And this is the unusual part. Go away. 
Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Why would Peter ask Jesus to leave? <laughs> it looks to me like Peter would say, Can I hang around with you? Can I stay with you? Will you stay with me? Will you come to my house? But, but he tells Jesus, or asks Jesus, Depart from me. Go away from me. Now why does he say that? Why, why does he ask Jesus to go away? Or why does he ask Jesus to leave? Well, he tells us why. Or, uh, yeah, it tells us why in verse 8. I'm, I'm a sinful man. Go away, I'm a sinful man. The miracle has powerfully impressed upon him the reality of Christ's holiness and his own sinfulness. I can see from the miracle that you do. Now, he simply understands, I'm in the presence of greatness, and I'm unworthy. I'm in the presence of holiness, and I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy even to be in his presence. And so he says to Jesus, go away from me. The contrast between Peter and Christ is so great and so intense that the two cannot be together in the same place. The presence of the Holy One is an implicit condemnation of the sinful one. You see that? So when Peter realizes who Jesus is, the power, the holiness, that just brings his own weakness and sinfulness to light. Just It stands out in bold relief. And Peter just says, I'm not worthy for you to even be in my presence. And so the miracle of Jesus convinced Peter that he was in the presence of greatness, someone far superior to himself, someone of enormous power and authority and holiness. And Peter... Peter possesses none of those things. He has no power. He's sinful. He's weak. And so he recognizes his own unworthiness and expresses that sense of unworthiness by saying, Depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. If you could choose one word that would describe Peter's reaction, what would it be? How does he respond? He responds in, well, one of the words that comes to my mind is fear. He responds, and in fact, Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. And so he responds in fear. Now, we've been talking about the fear of the Lord this year. And every month we'll have a sermon, a lesson on the the fear of the Lord. We're trying to encourage each other to live in the fear of the Lord. Live in the fear of the Lord every day. It affects every aspect of your life. And so let's live in the fear of the Lord. And we see Peter responding to Jesus with the fear of the Lord. And so we want to draw out some lessons from that. Now, we didn't have a lesson on the fear of the Lord this month because of the gospel meeting. So I thought I would maybe try to fill in the gap. There are some lessons that we can learn from this about living in the fear of the Lord. Eventually in the story, you'll see that Jesus tells him, I've got some work for you to do. You'll catch men. Don't be afraid. You're going to catch men from here on out. And then in verse 11, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed them. And so we're going to draw out some some observations about living in the fear of the Lord. In the first place, the fear of the Lord will produce better worship in us. If we truly understand who Christ is, if we truly understand who God is, His holiness, His power, His might, 
We're not going to have any trouble worshiping effectively. Peter didn't have any trouble bowing his face to the ground. It was almost just a reflex reaction, wasn't it? Because he understood the greatness of God, his unworthiness, and so he humbled himself and acknowledged that. Now, now he's not the only one in the Bible to do that. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, you'll find uh, Moses at the, the burning bush. Remember, the Lord speaks to him from the burning bush. He tells Moses to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. And verse 6, he said, I am the God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Asia, Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He did what Peter did. He hid his face out of the fear of the Lord. He understood, I'm in the presence of someone far superior to me. I'm weak. I'm sinful. We, we really, I, I don't even deserve to be in His presence. And so he hides his face out of fear. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Here's another very similar uh, situation. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us about the vision of God that Isaiah sees in, in the temple. Verse 1, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. His train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called out to the other saying, Holy, 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 the whole earth is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out. And Isaiah says, Woe is me! I'm, a, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And so when, he, when, that, when that sight makes its impression on Isaiah again, Woe is me! I'm unworthy to be in, in His presence. These, these people, Moses, Isaiah, Peter, had no trouble humbling themselves and expressing their devotion, doing obeisance to the Lord. The Psalms are really full of this kind of idea. Let's read, let's just read a few. The 100th Psalm says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. And when you acknowledge the Lord is God, well then you break out into praise. Shout joyfully. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before, or come into His courts with, with praise. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. And so when we truly understand who the Lord is, His character, His nature, we're not going to have any trouble worship him, worshiping Him genuinely, worshiping Him sincerely, worshiping Him intensely, worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Look at the 111th Psalm, the first few verses. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's given food to those who fear Him. He will remember His covenant forever. And then verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. You see how the fear of the Lord is linked with His praise? There in verse 10. You fear the Lord. You think about His works. Think about His power. You think about His salvation. Praise the Lord. You know, and offered sincerely. We've been studying the book of Revelation. You can see a similar idea in Revelation chapter 4. Here's a description of the throne of God, Revelation chapter 4. And these heavenly beings that are around the throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they break out in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. There are several features of God that ought to produce this sense of awe in us. His power. Just think about the power of God and the authority of His Word as He spoke all these things into existence. His holiness. So think about coming into the presence of a holy God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. <laughs> Just a description of, of His holiness. His glory. In, in some ways, it's the glory that overpowers those who have these visions of God. They, they see God in His glory, and they're overcome by it. His wisdom, His mercy, His love, His salvation. We under, when we understand these things as we should, we don't have any trouble worshiping God the way we should. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. When we come together for worship, let's render to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Is our worship sometimes ineffective? Are we unmoved by it? Is it a little bit dull and uh, un... Uh, you know, kind of unmoving. Well, we're not the first ones to experience that. That's an old problem. It's been around for a long time. And sometimes when that happens, people want to remedy the situation by doing something sort of external and making worship more exciting, maybe more entertaining. And so people want to produce a certain feeling when they come to worship. And so they do that by putting on a you know, grand spectacle. Well, there are a couple of things wrong with that, I think. First of all, once you begin to go down that path, you got to go further down the path. <laughs> you know? Once you put on a light show, the next thing is you're going to have to use uh, um, uh, these smoke machines. You know? It's just going to have to get more and more and more. And that's not really where the problem is. The problem is, is in the heart. The problem is that we don't fully appreciate the fact that we're in the presence of, of God, like Peter was in the presence of the Son of God. If we understand that, we're not having any trouble worshiping, not having any trouble praying sincerely, we're not having any trouble singing from the heart, we're not having any trouble with those things. And so the problem is not the externals, even though we want to worship as a, you know, make it as, as effective and as much quality as possible. So many times it's a problem of our heart. And then the second thing wrong with, it, with that approach is that, you know, our worship is not about us. 
It's really not about achieving some sort of feeling within us. That's not, that's not the primary purpose of worship. It's, it's about God. It's about praising God. And if we sincerely praise God and understand we're in His presence, we'll, we'll get that invigoration from that. But it's primarily about God and worshiping Him. And we need to worship Him in the way that He directs us to and do it sincerely from the heart. So let's think about God and His attributes. What would be your reaction if you were in Peter's place that day? How would you respond if Jesus provided that great catch of fish? How would you respond if the Lord spoke to you from a burning bush? How would you respond if you saw the vision that Isaiah saw? Again, if we, if we put ourselves in their place, we'll have no trouble worshiping gen- sincerely and genuinely and from the heart very deeply and intensely. The fear of the Lord will produce better worship in us. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is going to produce discipleship. And so we noted in verse 11 of Luke chapter 5, when they brought their boats to the land, they gathered the fish in, their boats were sinking, they they get them to the land, they unload the the fish from the boats and and all of that. They they left everything and followed Him. This is the one that we ought to be following. (laughs) Did you see what He did? This is the one that we need to follow. And so they left their boats and they followed Him. They committed themselves to being His disciples. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If Jesus is the Lord, if He's the Messiah, if He's the King, if they're in awe of Him and fear Him, they should follow Him. Who else would they follow? Now, this is what Jesus did, and this is what it means about Him and who He is. But we're going to follow this inferior person over here. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? (laughs) Who else would they follow? Why would they not follow Jesus? In the same way, if we know that Jesus is Lord, if we fear Him as Lord, we ought to follow Him. We ought to be loyal to Him. Notice the words of Peter in a couple of other places. Look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 28. Luke chapter 18 and verse 28. This is in connection with the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he uh, leaves Jesus after Jesus tells him to sell what he has and give it to the poor. And he turned away from Christ. Uh, and in the conversation that follows, Peter makes this statement, verse 28. Peter says, Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. We've left everything and followed you. And we left our business and followed you. We left our family and followed you. We left our homes and followed you. And, and why did he do that? Because he understood who the Lord is, who Jesus was. On another occasion in John chapter 6, many disciples are turning away from Jesus and they're not following Him anymore. And Jesus turns to His apostles and He says, Now would you leave as well? These others are leaving. How about you? Would you leave? And, and Peter says, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If we fear the Lord, if we know that He has the words of eternal life, Why would we follow someone else? Naturally, we would follow Him and be loyal to Him. Now, what does it mean to be loyal to Jesus as Lord? What does it require of us? Well, it means we don't divide our loyalty between Him and others. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, You're either for me or against me. 
You're either for me and you're following me and you're supporting me and or you're against me. One or the other, there's no middle ground. And so for following Christ, we're all in or we're all out. There are a lot of things in our lives that compete for our loyalty, that compete for our, our allegiance. Material things compete with the Lord for our allegiance. Relationships, human relationships compete for our loyalty. And so sometimes we are disloyal to the Lord, so we hang on to this relationship. Or our pursuit of material things leads us to compromise our commitment to the Lord. Our career, our leisure time, all of those things are competing for first place in our life. But if we fear the Lord and follow Him, we're loyal to Him and Him alone. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus says, You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do both. You know, you're going to have to choose. You can't do both. It's either me or material things. Which is it? And so if we are following Him, we need to follow only Him. When He's criticized or insulted, if we're loyal to Him and following Him, we defend Him. We don't allow people to speak against our Lord without a response. That's following Him. That's being loyal to Him. If you are at work and uh, standing around with a bunch of guys and they began to criticize your wife and speak against your wife in some way, what, what would you do? Just let that go? <laughs> Surely not. Stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, Let me tell you something about her. You, and so if we're loyal to the Lord, when He's questioned, when He's criticized, we stand up for Him and defend Him. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says that he's set for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And says much the same thing in verse 16. Knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. I'm here to defend the gospel. I'm going to teach it. And when it's criticized and when people speak against it or try to contradict it, I'm going to speak up. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with meekness and reverence, gentleness and reverence. And so be ready to defend the gospel of Christ. And then to be loyal to Christ, to follow Him, means that we obey Him. If we follow Him, we obey Him. If we don't obey Him, we're not following Him. Over and over in the Bible, and Brother Steve brought this out during the gospel meeting. He looked especially at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. There's a link, there's a connection to be made between the fear of the Lord and obedience to the Lord. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1 says, uh, or, or rather uh, there at the end of the, the book, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments. This applies to every person. This is the whole of man, the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. The two are linked. If we fear God, we keep His commandments. If we disregard His commandments, well then, we don't fear God. Interesting thing is said in Genesis chapter 22. You might remember that chapter is the chapter that tells us about Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. You remember that? And so Abraham takes his son, the son of promise, up the mountain, 
builds the altar. He lays Isaac on the altar, raises the knife. He's about to kill him. And the Lord stops him, provides another sacrifice. Remember what the Lord said in, in all of this? Um, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. Now I know that you fear God. When did he know that Abraham feared God? When he was ready to bring that knife down. When he, when he showed his willingness to obey. Now I know that you fear God. And so there's a link between obedience and the fear of the Lord. If we fear the Lord and He says, don't be angry, well then we work on our anger. We control our anger. If we fear the Lord and He says, tell the truth, we tell the truth. If we fear the Lord and He says, guard your speech, we guard our speech. If we fear the Lord and He says, I want you to assemble for worship, okay, we assemble for worship. If we fear the Lord and He says, I want you to take care of your aging parents, <laughs> we take care of our aging parents. If we fear the Lord and He says, be generous and forgive and repent, we're generous and we forgive and repent. If we fear the Lord and He says, be baptized for the remission of your sins, we obey. And so if we fear the Lord, we obey. It's as simple as that. If we don't obey, well, something's wrong in our fear of the Lord. And then the final point is this. The fear of the Lord will produce work for the Lord. And so you remember when Jesus tells, tells Peter after he said, you know, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Uh, Jesus uh, says, don't be afraid. Uh, this is, uh, uh, he tells him, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. And so don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. That's down in verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, don't, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. And that's what they did. If we fear the Lord, we'll work for the Lord. Those two things go together as well. When Isaiah had this vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, the vision that he saw, and uh, the Lord asked the question, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? What did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. Now Moses was reluctant at first, but he ended up leading the people out, out of Egypt. The work of Peter and the others was to catch men. The work of Isaiah was to preach God's message to the people, even though they wouldn't listen. The work of Moses was to lead the people to the promised land. Now what's our work for the Lord? If we fear the Lord, we're going to do His work. What is our work? Well, our work is to teach the gospel. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, the disciples, except the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but all the others, they, they went everywhere preaching the word. How will other people come to fear the Lord if they're not introduced to the Lord? How will they believe without a preacher? Romans 10 and verse 14. Think of someone specific. Well, just while you're sitting there, think of someone specific that you know that you can share the gospel with and follow through on it. Something as simple as, hey, how about coming to church with me on Sunday? So something very simple. Just breaks the ice and gets the conversation going in that direction. Think of someone specific and follow through. That's our work, to teach the gospel. Our work is to build up the brethren by teaching, by prayer, by encouragement, by admonition, by support. You remember from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, 
We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That's our work, to encourage and build up one another. And our work is to serve others in the name of Christ. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And so we're to do good, to, to serve others. Jesus served others by washing the disciples' feet. Paul collected money for needy saints. Stephen and Philip provided for the daily needs of neglected widows. Dorcas made clothes for fellow Christians. All of them put their fear of the Lord into action by doing His work in the world. And so should we. There are various ways we can do it. But we need to put our fear of the Lord into action by doing His work. Romans chapter 12 lists some of the things that Christians can do. Beginning in verse 8. At one time, people prophesied miraculously according to the proportion of their faith in service, if service is, is your gift. Well, then perform that in service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There are lots of things that we can do. Look at, look at the things that he mentions there. Service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy. Well, we can, there's lots of things that we can do. And so put our fear of the Lord in, into action as Peter and, and the others did. At first, we might be puzzled by Peter's reaction. Why in the world would he ask Jesus to leave? <laughs> It's always kind of uh, an interesting response to me. But with a little bit of thought, we can see his reaction is completely understandable. He's face to face with the Lord. So he bowed in fear. Jesus lifted his head and directed, directed him not to fear, but to go to work for his cause. And he did. And we ought to, be, we ought to do the same. Don't be afraid. Go to work. <laughs> And so we should. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to come together and to open your book, the book that you've revealed to us, to study from it, to learn what you would have us to do. Our Father, help us to appreciate more deeply who you are and what you've done and what you've done on our behalf. Our Father, we pray that we will grow in the fear of the Lord, that, that we'll understand it better and more and more deeply. And Father, we pray that that will have a tremendous impact on our lives. It'll help us worship better, Father, when we come together and sing together and pray together. And our thoughts are directed upward toward you. And we'll be able to do this more intense, intensely because of our deeper understanding of the fear of the Lord. Help us, Father, to uh, produce, uh, help us to, to be disciples of the Lord, to follow Him, and help us to understand what it means to be a follower of the Lord. Help us to obey Him, and help us to advance His cause in the world. And help us, Father, to put our fear of the Lord to work. Help us find the work that we can do, and help us to carry it out and do it for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to the benefit of those who are outside the body. Help us to to work to bring them in as well. Our Father, we pray that we will live in the fear of the Lord every day, and that it will touch everything that we do, and that it will draw us closer, closer, closer and closer to you, 
and to the home that you've provided for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.